Hello and welcome to another episode of Gen Podcast. Today, the topic of discussion is social welfare. So we have Umesh Moramudali and Gaini Hurulle with us today to discuss a little bit more about social protection. So I think when we talk about social protection, the first thing that we have to discuss about for anyone who is eager to learn about this is to explain and to know what social welfare is and what are the things that is encompassed in the term social welfare. So I think it's better if we start the discussion by telling a little bit more and explaining social welfare as a concept. Would uh, yes. Yeah, it's interesting because there are many different terms that are thrown about these days, a social protection, social safety net, social assistance and so on. So just to start with terminology and then we'll get into what specifically it should encompass is that social protection is a wide umbrella of terminology and which really looks at a lot of different things. It looks at uh, social assistance, which is essentially where the state will pay to subsidize or just pay for the benefits of people who are deemed poor or vulnerable from the state's budget. It looks at social, so this includes uh, programs like Samurthi, which we're very familiar with. There are disability benefits, uh, kidney benefits, and so on. Then you have social insurance programs, uh, which are the pensions, your EPF, ETF, those sort of uh, programs. You have livelihood development programs, which you will see even those days under the Samurthi program, you would have economic empowerment, those type of programs. You can also consider programs where you look at uh, like uh, social services or social care programs where you have say orphanages, elder homes being run. So it's essentially uh, the government and honestly other non-state actors as well uh, playing a role to make sure that those who are poor, vulnerable and basically in need are supported to make sure that their basic needs are taken care of. I, I think that pretty much <laughs> covers. covers. Okay, so now that we know a little bit more about what social welfare is, can we also discuss now Sri Lanka has been a welfare state uh, since the independence, I think. So from that point or like in the recent times, what, what have been the social welfare schemes that have been being uh, being implemented in Sri Lanka and uh, like could you tell us how like how many programs have been there what are they and uh, who were the beneficiaries right so there are many different programs that have been implemented over time and what we've seen is that uh, different programs have been added over the years so some came in the 1940s some in the 60s 70s 90s and so on uh, right now uh, my last count was that there were at least 30 different programs uh, which has their own benefits sometimes it helps to have very targeted programs for a specific need uh, but of course some of them have their own drawbacks uh, so uh, yeah many I think at least 30 are in place uh, what you'd be most familiar with is the Samurthi program which has been in place since 1995 and that is a that was sort of a um, changing of from the Janasavya program that was in place earlier uh, so that is one of the flagship programs that has been in place until very recently. 
um, it was conceptualized as actually quite a good program, but it has in its implementation, it ended up being uh, co-opted for political gain, which unfortunately led it to be quite an inefficient program. So Lanija did some research on this uh, national representative survey in uh, between August 2022 and uh, March 2023. And what we found is that the Samurthi program, there were 1.7 million beneficiaries. So those are families uh, as of uh, last year, I believe. And of the 1.7 million beneficiaries, only 40% were actually below the poverty line. Right. Another thing that we saw in Samurdi is if you look at the poorest 10% of households, only 31% were actually receiving it. Meanwhile, 4% um, of the poor, uh, of the richest 10 households were actually receiving Samurdi. So you see that this is essentially now what we inherited was quite a broken system. And then this was co-opted for political gain. Uh, one reason is that income was the um, eligibility sort of criteria to get on the program. But in practice, different uh, individuals, institutions tended using different eligibility criteria. And then we saw that uh, many, uh, even politicians used it to get people on the, on the program. So uh, in doing our research, we even met um, an individual, uh, a mason in Polonaro, who told that he couldn't get on the Samudhi program for many years, but after he started attending election rallies and in fact started putting up, you know, flag posts and whatnot for at an election rally, uh, he got on the program shortly after. So that itself will show you the design of the program versus implementation, how it failed. So that's just one of the programs. You know, there are many others. Some have their relative merits, but um, this is one of the programs that has been in the spotlight as uh, necessary for reforms. No, I mean, uh, to put a little bit of a context to what Gaini says, uh, because she gave a lot of numbers, uh, because there's a lot of discussion why why Samudhi is being eliminated or what's the issue with Samudhi. Uh, as she mentioned, uh, there were a number of issues. I think this all broadly falls under three or four major areas. One is uh, the inclusion and exclusion errors that Ghani referred to, you know, some rich people were receiving Samurdi while um, while their research clearly shows that only 40% of the poor were receiving Samurdi because the, the objective of Samurdi was to ensure that the poor get some support from the government because they don't have money or it is difficult for them to do a job. So essentially 60% of the poor that were supposed to receive, receive that support was not receiving support. Um, as a, uh, you know, support from the Samurdi. Right, so then, then we go back to, okay, that's the inclusion and exclusion errors, and then why, right? That's that's where the political patronage is coming, uh, where there's a significant political influence in terms of determining who's getting Samurdi. Uh, this has been coming in many different ways. One of the ways is that the local government uh, uh, members were, were members of the committee that decides who's getting Samurdi and who's not. Uh, and as Gani mentioned, the income was uh, one of the major criteria. And once you submit an application, it is being assessed by a committee. And that committee has some of the officer, Gramanidari, and also the local government member and few others. Right now, so they are the, the realistically the local government member has a significant influence in the process. That's where, you know, as she mentioned, 
people who ca- uh, people who cater to the certain political party go on to the rallies getting into the samurdhi beneficiary program right and uh, then there's also the element of samurdhi officers because samurdhi officers also been politically appointed right this is not to say the previous scheme so better they they supported the previous regime and then samurdhi just replaced it with uh, their own political affiliations but the bottom line is then you have samurdhi officer who is also a political appointee and then a significant power is held by the local government official then it makes sure that the people who receive samurdhi are not the ones who are supposed to receive it and so that sort of manipulates the system so that's the second one the third one is i think uh, the inefficiencies in the system because i think gaini can add the stats because this uh, all, all 16 gram nilidari divisions as one samurdhi bank and this samurdhi bank often does not locate in a uh, city sometimes in a far away area sometimes people have to go in like two or three buses to get into the samurdhi bank and that samurdhi bank gives you a specific date to come in and collect your payments you go to go on that day and then realize that ah, okay the payment hadn't come in and most of these people who are receiving samurdhi are the daily daily wage earners so they either have to stop farming fishing or doing any other daily wage activities and go and collect the payment and the moment you go and collect the payment you told sometimes ah, okay the officers are not here the money hasn't come in many different things so there's a huge transaction cost and also uh, essential loss of money for those people for whom like you know even 5000 rupees is quite a lot of money and that inefficiency is on top of you know all those different ways of harassment in the sense i don't mean like different ways of harassment when i say like you know it's it's difficult to get you know you to get different approvals and wait in the queue like uh, it's a long long process sometimes to get like you know get the some of the benefit so that inefficiency is also one of the big uh, loopholes right gani i mean like the the absolutely thing you had like some interesting findings there yeah absolutely thanks umesh for bringing that up so even from this survey that we did we found that on average Uh, a beneficiary would spend one and a half hours traveling to the Samurthi Bank, and then another two and a half hours at the Samurthi Bank. So that's an average of four hours. In fact, there were some people who said that they had spent up to twelve hours at the Samurthi Bank to collect at that point quite a small sum of money. But of course, it is substantial for many families, right? So uh, you see. like umesh said the transaction costs are very high and absolutely like umesh said the communication channels absolutely have broken down um but of course it's context dependent so i remember we went to uh, a certain uh, and spoke to a certain group in jaffna who said that they used whatsapp groups to communicate and they said uh, when the money was ready they would text the group and say okay money is ready come but in some other cases they had a fixed date and then you know there were all these other communication barriers and again like umesh said people would have to go on multiple days once they go there they have to stay spend a lot of time there and again uh, echoing what umesh said what we also heard is that the power dynamics are such that people sometimes felt belittled where they couldn't even um they didn't feel like they were entitled to ask for the process to move faster people would take very long lunch breaks and then which would lead to this very inefficient process so um many many different elements to to build up on to show that there is a clear need to move away from this process yeah so i think it's very clear that samurdhi uh, as a samurdhi scheme as a welfare scheme 
although has its benefits, also have uh, a lot of drawbacks. And that is probably why we needed um, a new a replacement uh, for the Samudhi scheme. And I think in that context is where Aswasuma comes in. And again, that Aswasuma as a scheme has also created a lot of social discussion. And the, the point of whether it is better or, uh, than Samurdhi, or is it just better on paper and like you just discussed, like we just discussed how implement, when it comes to implementation, there are a lot of variables coming into play and how it might not be uh, what it is originally envisaged, right? So even though Aswasuma has been implemented for a short time, what are your insights as on Aswasuma? What is it? How has it been so far? Do you want to go? I, I will I uh, give context because Gaini has more specific details on that uh, what they found out. I think uh, I'll clarify why why I mean now we know that why access was needed because to issue, address issues of Samurdhi. So one common question a lot of people would ask is okay now there's Asasuma does that mean Samurdhi does not exist? Uh, so uh, from what we have heard because we are also researchers we are not speaking for the government or any institution on that regard so so we also speak from the information that we get from them from what we hear is uh, that the welfare benefit board will carry out the cash transfer payment which is the money that people usually get as a sum of the benefit that will be handled by the welfare benefit board that is what is now termed as asrasuma so that means you know, those monthly payments will no longer be handled by the Samudhi Bank. People no longer have to go to the Samudhi Bank to collect that uh, those payments that will directly go to a bank account uh, of the recipient. They can go it either collect through the ATM or, or, or go to the bank and collect it. And so that, that eliminates Samudhi Bank from the process of uh, providing money or rather disseminating the money that is coming from the government that is handled now by the Welfare Benefit Board and directly going to the banking system. So which, which makes the process more efficient. So that leaves the question, what's then happened to the Samurdi? So what uh, what we are hearing from the government is that Samurdi will no longer handle cash payments, but Samurdi will handle the empowerment aspect of social welfare because social welfare, also Samurdi in particular, is not merely about giving cash to the people. It wasn't supposed to be that. The idea of that is you, you provide certain support during the tough times and uh, trying to help them, uplift them, you know, providing them a sort of sort of basic support to to facilitate the social mobility right so that is the idea to do the empowerment so the empowerment part is still with the samudhi of course we don't know how this is going to be uh, played out it's it's quite unclear uh, as for me it is quite unclear i mean uh, i don't know whether there's more information out there but i think both of us are on the same page on that right so uh, so there's that aspect and then there are also unclarity about uh, what's going to happen to certain Samudhi payments. For example, uh, how Samudhi payments used to work is there were certain uh, stuff like um, compulsory saving and some amounts were deducted for, you know, in case of a Samudhi beneficiary having a funeral or, or a ch you know, child getting married or a childbirth, etc. So they used to get some amounts and for those there were some deductions. Right, so those things also important for them, and it's not quite clear how how that's also gonna play out. But what is clear is you are not getting both. <laughs> you are only getting aswasuma as your cash transfer. Samurdi is, I think, they are planning to have it there as the empowerment uh, yeah. side of it. Right, so. Yeah.
that's that's my idea that is also my understanding <laughs> but of course like umesh said we don't have full clarity on what is going on with government this is what we are hearing from various discussions and what's available in the public domain uh, but yes uh, there are some questions on how it will link to the compulsory savings and the loans all of that is unclear because ideally if they are being handled by two different agencies then you need the databases to be combined uh, and the two agencies to work together in tandem to a certain extent again we don't have a lot of clarity on how or if or how that's going to happen um so yes just adding to what umesh said uh, the fact that we are trying to move away from the samurdhi banks towards regulated banks because samurdhi banks despite their name were actually just government collection points they weren't regulated by the central banks so going towards regulated agencies is always a, a step in the right direction um one thing though that i'd like to mention is that as far as i'm aware the benefits are only being dispersed through government banks it hasn't been pushed out to private banks yet so ideally if it was pushed out to private banks also then the number of collection points would further increase which would then be more convenient to people right so again you may be dealing with a more limited set of uh collection points once again something else that i heard is that uh government was trying to regulate the samurdhi banks bring it under the wing of the central bank i believe as a microfinance institution and then allow for disbursement through the samurdhi banks as well in my opinion that's not necessarily a bad thing because once they're regulated and then they're brought back into the system then again that will further increase the number of collection points so from a pure transaction cost perspective that seems like a good way to go just for convenience of people but of course you need to make sure that they are digitalized well all these are the facilities that are available at other banks are also available at those to make it a fair sort of a good experience for people when they go to collect their benefits the other thing that i'd like to talk about in terms of aswasuma is that they are trying to make an effort to use uh, data to actually verify who's in need of benefits so something that we spoke about earlier in the context of um, uh, samurthi is that they used income or expenditure as a means of selecting who should come into the program but that's very difficult to verify because in sri lanka we have a lot of you know seasonal variation you have a lot of informal work so it's very difficult to identify what people's income and expenditure are unlike in developed countries where this is all uh sort of they are on on record right so this is why in a lot of developing countries and sri lanka is not the only one in a, a whole array of developing countries you tend to use this thing called proxy means test where you look at what kind of uh, you know your assets you own what kind of uh, house you live in and a you know bunch of other indicators to as a proxy to see whether or not you need benefits now there are various pros and cons of this which i will not get into because we could spend hours talking about it but just in principle it's my view is that it's a step in the right direction because we've seen a system where uh, the lack of verifiable data has meant that the entire system has been co-opted by various different uh, parties and there have been various perverse incentives so to the extent possible that we can use data 
to actually see who is providing correct information and verify that is a step in the right direction. It's not going to be perfect by any means. And this is why this appeals process, which has also been built into the system is so essential. Um, it's We don't have a lot of visibility in how the appeals process is going to work beyond uh, the rules that are, have been published by the government, I believe in October, 2022, which says that there's going to be a five member committee, including uh, representatives from the divisional secretariat, two representatives from the district secretariat, and two representatives from uh, like a non-governmental community who will be a part of that committee. But beyond that, we honestly don't have a lot of visibility into how it's going to be carried out. Uh, I believe the appeals process is being, uh, they're working on sorting through the appeals right now. So it's only later that the final list of um, beneficiaries will be put out. But what you will see is that it is a more systematic process with more checks and balances than some of the, and that is uh, at least on paper, uh, quite encouraging. I think the Gaini, there's also that aspect, you know, the uh, limited room for political influence, right? Because uh, earlier you, have, you could see the Samudhi officer could decide whether this person is getting or not and the local government uh, politician can decide now you have to entirely rely on data so there's a exactly. lot more you know you don't have to go and beg uh, your yeah. political uh, you know your your local government politician or the samudhi visa that which was the case before i i think that's exactly. yeah as you said that's good uh, but there's also you know there's lot of room for improvements yeah, absolutely and one thing that we've seen in talking to people in doing qualitative research is understanding that there are quite a lot of um, information gaps because on ground uh, i mean in to their credit you've seen that government has tried to communicate to people through a, a variety of channels even to tell to register for programs i remember sms's coming it was in the media or that but what we saw when we went to the field is people rely on relationships pre-existing relationships with government officers to really understand what to do they need the government they're used to having the government officers say this is what you need to do and when there are information asymmetries uh, and you know when the message gets diluted and changed as it goes from officer to officer then you find that there are people the message that people actually get at the end is actually quite different and we've seen this even in the appeals process uh, we've seen this in the context of people's understanding or perceptions on how long they're getting benefits for because something that we saw again in this process is that according to the gazettes put out by government uh, the beneficiaries oh, and this is also something quite important to mention the beneficiaries have been grouped into four groups right so they are getting different amounts so they've been called transitional poor vulnerable poor and severely poor and there's a certain group say the transitional poor will get 2500 rupees and they will only get that for six months then the vulnerable group i believe gets 5000 for nine months and then the poor and the severely poor go, both get benefits for three years, but for eight and uh, sorry, eight thousand rupees and fifteen thousand rupees. Eight, eight five, I think. Right? Five thousand is for the eight thousand five hundred. Eight thousand five hundred, yeah. perhaps eight thousand five hundred. That's so uh, that's that's the poor. Poor, poor. severely poor gets uh, poor is fifteen thousand. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so, but of course, now this is what's in the gazette. 
One is that we've heard people's understanding of what they have said as six months being three months, uh, what is supposed to be three years being understood as six months. So there's quite a lot of, you know, confusion about that. And honestly, even as a researcher who has been working on this area, what is sort of unclear to me is how people are actually going to be moved out of this process. Are they going to do a reassessment in six, nine months and three years to actually see, okay, have they, do they no longer fulfill this criteria before they're taken out of the scheme? What are the indicators that are going to be checked before they're taken out? So there are many questions, even as researchers, I certainly have. Um, and we're, of course, looking to see whether they're going to be answered. But yeah, generally. I think that's, that's also where the statistics department comes in, right? I mean, uh, they are not really happy with sharing data in most cases. <laughs> but I mean, uh, the, one of the questions that I have is like, so are they going to conduct a similar, the exact same exactly. survey again? Exactly. And then to do the reassessment of the people and then decide, okay, we are going to remove you. Exactly. Uh, so that that data collection part again, are you are you again going to do the data collection? Is it is the after three months is it deci decided based on data collection or is it decided based on something else? That that part for exactly. me also not uh, not clear. Exactly. And honestly, going back to first principles of the specific indicators that are also used, my hunch, and I mean, we can again go into more detail here, is that. I don't think that the many of the particular indicators that have been chosen are ones that change, you know, quite frequently over time. So like the type of house you live in, uh, you know, the nature of housing, the square footage of your house and so on. That is my sense is that it's a sign of long term poverty and that's not going to fluctuate a lot. So that's also one of the drawbacks that uh, need to be thought about in terms of how you structure different types of programs and what indicators you use for each of those. Yeah, I mean, then, then I think, I, are you again going back to income to determine whether they are, they are eligibility or not, right? Exactly. Because that, that, that is like one thing that might change. Mm. That also, again, you know, self-reporting. Exactly, so. exactly. So, I mean, th these are just very difficult questions. Exactly. I understand why you use the proxies. Yeah. But at the same time, um, you also deal with these more fundamental issues of what's a good indicator. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think this way we can insist the the role of the statistics department enough to say because lo the the success of this program largely around two things, right? One is the quality of the data you collect. So that really depends on how the questionnaire is designed, how you collect data how you store data, the transparency of the data, how the data is analyzed and how the indicators are weighted and then you arrived at the, you know, the, the deprivation score, whatever the criteria that you use. And then the, the capacity of the uh, welfare benefit board or the statistics department and uh, whatever other government agencies to implement this, you know, do all that. I genuinely have concerns about that, I feel. I don't know whether you have also come across any because for me as we discuss uh, uh, we don't know okay now we, we, how this further data collection is going to happen and uh, we don't see the data being made public either at least mm -hmm. you know saying okay this number of people we know the very basic numbers this many applied and this many rejected but that's all we have right even 
for us to as researchers to do an assessment i think in other countries i see the data is being right. more transparent right. yeah uh, so i do have two questions out of the discussion that we had just before comparing and looking at analyzing the two social protection schemes and the uh, so first one is the extent of the government involvement so we know uh, who's implementing which ministry line ministry or ministries are, are actually responsible for it and omesh was also talking about the role of someone who's not necessarily implementing the program but is crucial in order to get the uh, beneficiaries right data right everything so what is the extent of the government's involvement in these uh, schemes so, i think you you can there yeah so just to, so just so that i can understand uh, the question is uh, where has the government got involved at various stages yes. of this right yes. so like umesh said uh, here the welfare benefits board is the agency that is really key for the asvasma program uh, i think by law they have two functions one is to identify uh the beneficiaries and then also ensure the delivery right so they are really the key agency over there but like kumesh mentioned uh there are the um department of census and statistics i'm sure ministry of finance just broadly plays a role in allocating money um various other agencies also play a supporting role uh and then of course the link to the ministry of um, i believe women and child affairs yes. and economic empowerment yeah. will also be crucial because of the link to the samurdhi program um and then of course at various other levels of provincial and local government they will have to get involved at an implementation level which is where the divisional secretaries district secretaries and so on will come in so it's a sort of multi-layered multifaceted a Um, sort of approach, but right now the WBB is the most central agency. This this is important because one of the reasons why WBB had to be established was because the social protection system, or rather the social, uh, what do you call it, the social safety net, has been fragmented. Right, so there was Samurdhi giving the Samurdhi benefits, then there's different uh, elderly secretariat providing elderly. Uh, allowance the disability secretary providing disability allowance i think the health ministry or uh, uh, something provided the kidney disease allowance so there were ma- very many different agencies providing so that duplicates the process that complicates the process so, so that's why everything had to be brought into one then you decide okay who's going to get what and at what price so you can bring all that data into one place right i think the, because they have the welfare uh, welfare what do you call the the integrated uh, yeah, data yeah the welfare integrated welfare management integrated system integrated welfare no? management yes. system so they at least they have, they have digitized the data exactly, now exactly. which wasn't the case before now you now the welfare management board has the all the, the data at one place yeah they can actually track you know who had requested what not so so that's like the one of the aims of doing it and to centralize that yeah that's a really good point because one of the big part of the big portion of the reform process has been the establishment of this particular uh, database because until then everything was operating in silos so now you can see okay if your family is getting samurdhi they can the centralized agency can also see whether they are getting disability benefits and what not so that's very helpful i think right now it is four schemes that has been brought under this particular database for now or that's at least the focus of the aswasma program but in time i believe the hope is to bring 
all the other social assistance programs under this um, registry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. hopefully that will yes, be one hopes. Right. Uh, one other point that I wanted to raise and clarify on is that we also spoke about how Samurdi is going to take charge of the empowerment, social empowerment element of it. And I would like to know uh, the social welfare schemes in general, say in the past decade and the upcoming ones. What is the social empowerment element in it, and has it been like? Have we observed a social empower, uh, like a social empowerment, from and through the schemes? So I suppose uh, we can talk historically. The Samudhi program itself had several different elements. So one of them was providing loans at a subsidized rate. Uh, though the rate, of course, when we spoke to people, they weren't even sure what the rate was, but. Uh, that was the provision of loans, uh, especially because uh, you hear that they couldn't get access to finance through, you know, normal commercial entities. So they did uh, rely on. I think these more loans. than the the rates, I think the key was they didn't have access to the banks and exactly. giving money. So that exactly. Was, yeah. So that has been, I think, one component of the empowerment initiative in which you can get uh, access to finance so that you can set up your own, you know, micro enterprise or whatnot. And the other has been a livelihood training program in which they actually provide you the necessary skills. Uh, my sense, again, very anecdotally, is that this has at least the livelihood uh, development program has not been done in a super centralized and planned way. Because when what we heard again from people, I don't have a good sense of how it happened from the sort of government planning side. But we heard people saying, yes, there were batik workshops, there were cake workshops and whatnot that were carried out at their uh, own like village level. But then at the same time, people had no interest. Uh, they didn't have access to get the right equipment. So therefore, uh, the entire program didn't work. So maybe one thing to think about in the future is, and it's no easy task, but even when coming up with the livelihood training programs, uh, the concept of trying to plan sort of centrally and see what are the key skills gaps that you need to try bridge and then see how you can bring it into the livelihood uh, training programs. That's one. Something that we've seen working quite well in the cases of countries like Bangladesh is, again, building on this loan initiative. Uh, because you see that they worked quite a lot with uh, private sector players as well. They brought in the, uh, you know, not-for-profit, like the sort of other communities as well who are doing this, and they worked in collaboration, which really helped the government programs to work quite well as well. So, yeah, I hope that answers that, yes. at least part of your question. Uh, so one final question before we wrap up the discussion is again something that is being discussed um, and I think a lot of misconceptions are also there around the same issue is whether uh, as a result of the IMF uh, agreements that the state of Sri Lanka has with the IMF has there is there any affectation to the social welfare scheme is there a, has have they suffered a cut um, or like what is the situation with regard to the IMF and its affectation to social welfare um, so, uh, IMF hadn't asked Sri Lankas to cut social welfare. In fact, uh, IMF has imposed a flow. That is to say that IMF has said, you, Sri Lankan government has to spend minimum this much amount of money on social welfare. So, that's, that's sort of a condition to say that you need to make sure that you protect the poor and vulnerable, which is 
which is when we read the IMF report on Sri Lanka, that's been uh, one of the key highlights uh, that has been uh, put there. So, so IMF doesn't come and say, look here, cut social welfare. This is also part of, you know, so IMF also learning from their mistakes back in the 70s, 80s. There was a lot of criticism against IMF saying, IMF don't really uh, um, care about the poor. They don't understand the poor's issues, etc. etc. So I think they have also evolved. And that's why you see in a lot of IMF programs now, they insist that the government uh, spend enough on social protection rather uh, to, to overall social protection, which includes uh, social safety nets, health, education, uh, all that. So, so IMF doesn't really say to cut it, but they say spend this this much minimum you have to spend. But of course, as we discussed throughout the podcast, lot riding on how poor and vulnerable get protected. The fact that it is happening, that's lot lot of, lot of that is riding on uh, the implementation, right? And and because now we have seen all the laws has been passed, you can allocate money, but uh, how that's going to be implemented will decide or determine uh, how how successful it will be. So I think with that we can wrap up the discussion. But before we wrap up, if there's if there is a last thought, that's something that you want to highlight. Uh, perhaps the two of you can. And I, I'll say like quickly to say, okay, the uh, reforming social safety net is essential because as as Gaini highlighted, with data because it is important to put data into perspective to understand how bad the issues were. The, the previous social safety net uh, system was bad and it really needed reforms. Uh, just there are issues in the way Asuasoma is carried out. It's not a perfect system, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. Uh, so I think I want to emphasize that point that the reforms are needed. It's a learning curve. It's not a perfect system at the start. I think it's important that acknowledge that there are issues, but move forward and try to fix the issues rather than, hey, we are abolishing this. We are going back to some of the all over again and we are giving everyone who's asking some of the, some of the, just like what we used to do. Uh, that is what precisely what we shouldn't do is, is my, my last point. Yeah, that's a great point. And what we saw in our national survey last year is that last year and this year, honestly, is that before COVID, there were 3 million poor people in Sri Lanka. This has increased by 4 million to a point that there are 7 million people living in poverty in Sri Lanka. So the need for social safety net reform, like Umesh mentioned, is so crucial because it impacts such a large part of our population. And there's almost a moral, you know, push right now to make sure that they are protected at this point in time. So that's what's very crucial right now. So like Umesh mentioned, uh, we need to make incremental steps. Uh, the first round of this reform process, even if it is implemented by the book, may have some challenges. We need to make sure that we learn from you know, the, the drawbacks that we saw, the challenges that people faced, and continually focus on improving the program. Um, I am particularly keen to see the extent to which we can bring in digital and data to improve the efficiency of the program. We are so far behind many of our peer countries. You look at Latin America, for example, they use, you know, they use various types of technologies to help deliver social protection to the poor. And uh, we also need to keep learning from our benchmark countries, from peer countries, and then work towards improving this process to help 
um, the poor and vulnerable communities. Uh, thank you both for that most insightful uh, discussion. And I think all of us learned quite a lot and got answers to many of the questions that we had in the, with regard to the topic of social welfare. So with that, we wrap up our discussion today. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Stay tuned for the next Gen Podcast. Thank you.